Welcome to CineStudy, comprehensive takes on what makes movies great. Now for our 43rd episode, 2020 Ranked. everybody, welcome back to CineStudy. I'm your host, Dylan, and today's episode, we're going through the movies that I saw for 2020 and ranking them, and I am super excited to do this. I've done this for two years now, 2018, I had 10 films, mainly major releases. 2019, I had 17, a lot of Oscar stuff, but also some of the big blockbusters. This year, you'd think I'd have less because so many things got shelved, but I actually have 18 films to talk about. While a lot of major releases were shelved, a lot of indie stuff rose to the surface, some stuff I may not have been aware of otherwise, which is always a good thing. If there's any silver lining within the movie world, you know, not addressing other stuff from 2020, it's that a lot of stuff got a lot of play that normally wouldn't, and I'm excited to kind of bring that stuff to the table. In fact, this is probably the most excited I've been about the lists I've done. Like, this is the third time I think I'm more excited about this one than 2018 or 2019, just because it will cover so many genres and levels, but couple of things we got to get out of the way as normal. This is kind of like routine, right? There's always some disclaimer. First of all, I'm going to lay out there stuff I didn't see, stuff that I don't want you to like get your hopes up <laughs> might be on my list somewhere because a lot of times when I listen to ranked things, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to see where X ends up and then it's just not on there and I get very disappointed. So I'm going to kind of like lay that out ahead of time just to kind of damper any uh, expectations you may have. Uh, but the other thing, around October last year, I put out a poll for favorite horror movies and favorite horror scores, because I really wanted to talk about uh, some of the things I had recently seen, discuss some of you guys' favorites, and you guys turned out in droves. And I had a ton of fun talking horror movies with you guys. I don't think I've ever addressed that on the program since. So I thought, hey, let's do it again, and let's get some of you guys' favorite 2020 movies. Uh, but unsurprisingly, not a ton of responses. I guess I should have seen this coming, but so many things were shoved, not a lot of major releases. Like, I feel like you had to go out of your way last year to find, like, the really good stuff. And so there's not a lot of responses to go through here. There's only three, and in fact, two of them are guys who have been on this show. So we'll get to that. But let's start with somebody who hasn't been on the show, which is at Movie Views on Instagram. His favorite movie was The Trial of the Chicago 7. I did not see this one, my friend. I'm I'm very sorry that I don't have much to say about this, but I'm glad that you liked it. I'm kind of interested in it a little bit just because I've never seen an Aaron Sorkin-directed movie. I heard kind of mixed opinions from some some podcasts that I trust, so I, I think that kind of delayed me seeing it. Um, but I'm glad to hear you liked it, even though I may wait a little while before eventually seeing The Trial of the Chicago 7. It will not be on my list to talk about today. All right, Corey, who has been on this show for the Top 10 Movies of the 90s episode, host of Big Dumb Movie, also on Spoilers Podcast. He's got three picks for me to discuss here. Two of them I have not seen, one I have. So let's start with the ones that I haven't seen. I did not see Birds of Prey, which was one of Corey's favorites from last year. That came out pretty early last year. The Harley Quinn movie, whose title is so long that it can't even fit on the poster, just goes off onto the wall it's hanging on. I was a little bit interested in this because it looked different from the other DC movies. It was Instead of the kind of overwhelming darkness and seriousness, it just looked like kind of this fun kind of pop to it. 
But at the end of the day, I, I when it comes to DC movies, it's like the MCU is there, so why would I turn to DC, right? Like, that's how I always end up feeling. Like, it, it's kind of like, you know, why would I watch Ants when I can watch A Bug's Life, right? Like, I, I, Pixar exists, so why do I, why would I keep going to Illumination who makes, like, you know, just kind of okay movies? That's how I've always felt with the MCU versus DC. I'm a much more of an MCU guy, but if there's any DC movie right now that I would see, Birds of Prey would be kind of high just because it does, again, seem kind of unique from the rest of them. And Margot Robbie seems like she's pretty fun as Harley Quinn, so I may have to check this one out eventually. Another one I may have to check out eventually, another one of Corey's picks, is Possessor which is the Brandon Cronenberg movie that came out last year that I didn't know much about before it came out. And then when it came out, it got talked about a lot. I've heard it's kind of this sort of modern, new kind of gore genre, subgenre that's happening. It's kind of hard to pin down. And yeah, I get that vibe from the trailer and the poster and stuff like that. That type of movie is not my cup of tea from what I can tell, but I can't say that with certainty because I haven't really sunk myself into it yet. Um, I think I'll get there eventually, but Possessor, like, I kind of look at it, I'm like, eh, it doesn't look like it's for me. But with kind of the positive reviews I've mainly been hearing, may have to check this one out eventually. I think I'd be more likely to check this one out than Birds of Prey. Corey had one more pick, and I'm going to save my opinion on it, but he liked Tenet. I saw Tenet. I will be talking about Tenet in this episode, in this ranking. Uh, and I'm glad you like Tenet. Tenet seems very divisive, which surprised me because it felt like pretty typical... Christopher Nolan style and and pieces and parts to the movie. It kind of surprised me how polarizing it seemed to be when it came out. And of course, it kind of came out during a time where it was like, all right, are people going to go see this in theaters? Are people going to wait? Like it, it was just like this weird limbo where Tenet was getting released and, and it was like, all right, are we going to go see this or not? Um, I ended up waiting, but I have seen it and I will be talking about it. And I'm glad you liked it, Corey. Last person, Pappy, who has also been on this podcast, Top 10 Movies of the 90s, spoilers host. His pick is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which he says is, quote, so weird. And I'm kind of interested to see this one. I did not see this one. I won't be talking about it in my ranking. I haven't really dipped my toes into a lot of Kaufman stuff. Like, I've watched a couple movies he's he's written, but not any of his directorial stuff or any of his, a lot of his most celebrated works. Some of the reviews and stuff I heard from this one just kind of intimidated me a little bit. Like, I, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie where I'd just kind of be lost the whole time. Um, there's movies that works perfectly for, and some of my favorite movies are like that, where after the first viewing, you're just like, uh, okay, I'm lost. Um, but I don't know. I just This one never never fully grabbed me, even though I was I was slightly interested in it when it started making waves when it came out. Pappy, I'm glad you liked this movie. Because uh, this kind of like Tenet seemed to be a bit polarizing when it came out, um, probably for that sort of confusion aspect, if I had to guess. All right, movies I didn't see that came out last year. I'm going to go pretty rapid fire through these. But again, this is just to like kind of lay out some things that I don't want you to get your hopes up. Because I don't know, that's just something that I've always <laughs> I've always experienced when I listen to ranking episodes. So, Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, Nomadland and Minari are kind of in the weird gray area of like 2020 versus 2021. Didn't see either. The King of Staten Island, Run, all of Steve McQueen's Small Axe productions, which I didn't know much about until recently, but I may have to check some of those out. The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, both Chadwick Boseman movies. I got to see one of those, right? Uh, Eurovision, Invisible Man, On the Rocks. Uh, one that I'm not sure if it really counts was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That's a one that kind of rode the line between 2019 and 2020. That one is getting a lot of acclaim, what it has been for a while now. 
So that one will probably go on the watch list at some point, but I won't be talking about it here. One Night in Miami, which is another one that I kind of wish I would have gotten around to. And then something that I'm just going to exclude from this list, but I really enjoyed, was Hamilton. I don't really like counting it. I'm a little bit upset that they nominated it for so many things at the Golden Globes. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to be talking about Hamilton. I liked Hamilton, but uh, I won't be ranking it among these other features. Okay, let's actually get into this list. Now, one thing I want to say, like one more quick thing. I feel like usually I spend a bit too much time on the lower stuff and then shortchange the higher stuff. Like I wish I would have talked about Parasite and 1917 more last year. So I'm going to go a little bit quicker through the bottom of this list, especially since it's an 18 movie list. Um, but I, my goal is to at least bring like at least one point to the table for each movie of like why you should see this, like wh what I think may grab somebody's attention, like what would be a good reason to see this that I think could apply to a lot of people. So that's my goal, but I'm going to move a little bit quicker than normal. Or at least I'm going to try to, I have a tendency to ramble. Uh, through the, the bottom, you know, third or so of this list. All right, let's do this. Coming in at 18, and I want to say this is by no means a bad movie. I actually really enjoyed this movie. It's just 2020 turned out to be a fairly strong year for movies. Borat Subsequent Movie Film. I enjoyed Borat Subsequent Movie Film. I just didn't enjoy it as much as Borat, like the original Borat. I don't think it quite has the magic of the first one. Like, I think the situations just aren't quite as good, like the, the interactions with like real people around the country. I think this one has some very fun ones and, and some now very infamous ones, such as the one with Rudy Giuliani, but I think I prefer the interactions he has with like the etiquette or comedy instructors in the first one. I think that's what I prefer. Something I really appreciate about Borat's subsequent movie film is how committed to the story it is, whereas like the first Borat is just kind of floating between locations just for like the sake of the comedy that they can find at each location. There's like a really solid through line through this movie, which is really impressive, especially with Borat and the new character of his daughter, which uh, I will I'll talk about in a second. I appreciated how much it committed itself to that storyline, uh, but I think maybe that was also like at the price of some of the fun interactions from the first one, some of the things that just felt like very natural and just very like on the street, candid kind of stuff. Sasha Baron Cohen still has it as Borat. Like, he's still got it down. He's still hilarious. And you've got a very welcome newcomer in Maria Bakalova, who plays his daughter, Tutar. Both of them are comedy gold throughout this movie. This movie has an absolutely glorious final 10 minutes. I love the joke they tell through those final 10 minutes. I, I did not see it coming, and it was so perfectly done, and it paid off a lot of stuff I didn't even realize was a setup. Um, I enjoyed Borat's subsequent movie film. Again, I don't like it as much as the first Borat, and obviously I don't like it as much as the other stuff I'm going to talk about here. But if you're a original Borat fan, you're of course going to really enjoy this movie. I think it, it holds its own alongside the first one, even though I think the first one is superior. All right, as always, I have a couple fan servicey type picks, like things that are near and dear to my heart. And the one I'm about to talk about is not as fan servicey as something a little bit higher on this list, but it's still something that you're only going to enjoy if you are a fan of this series already, and that is Bill and Ted Face the Music coming in at 17. Excellent! Bill and Ted Face the Music, of course, the third movie in the trilogy of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Two very chill dudes who have now grown up and are learning to face the music that they've made nothing of their lives. They were supposed to write a song that would unite and save the world, and they just didn't do that. But the time is now. They got to write this song with the help of their daughters, 
and also kind of save their marriages. And there's a lot of stakes for Bill and Ted in this movie. Again, this is only really a movie for people who love the first two Bill and Ted movies, which I do. I really enjoyed Bill and Ted Face the Music. But if you're not a fan, this movie is going to come off as very corny. It's never really laugh out loud funny, even though it has its comedic moments. But I do think the thing about Bill and Ted that everybody can get behind is how undyingly positive it is. Like Bill and Ted are just so likable and heartwarming all the time in their like brotherhood and in their, you know, they're just trying to like spread joy, it feels like, even if they're just kind of two crazy dudes doing it. And with that in mind, there's a very heartwarming and satisfying ending to this movie. It's, it's again, something that it like in theory sounds a little bit corny, but I, I don't know. I just I, I really enjoyed how this movie uh, ended. As always, you've got the time traveling aspect. That's kind of a staple of Bill and Ted. In this one, they're picking up famous musicians, and I love that. I mean, it was just so fun to see <laughs> the depictions of various musicians through the ages here. There's a robot in this movie whose name is Dennis Caleb McCoy. I mean, like, that's all you need to know. That's awesome. But yeah, Bill and Ted, not a movie for everybody, but I'll always love them for just how positive and, like, joyful they are and their movies make me feel. Bill and Ted Face the Music, number 17. All right, number 16 is a movie that would have surprised me if you had shown me that it was going to be this low at the start of last year, especially with the director behind it, and that is David Fincher's Mank. I forgot to mention, we are in 6 out of 10 range for my personal enjoyment. The last two are 6s, Mank is a 6. This movie, of course, chronicles uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, who famously, well, not famously, kind of got snubbed, but he wrote Citizen Kane, and that's kind of the idea. It's like, this guy wrote Citizen Kane, didn't get credit for it, let's look at his life. Uh, and for that premise, Mank is very forgettable to me. I like, I'm, I'm going to come across as more disappointed in this than the previous two I talked about, even though I have it ranked higher. Um, so let's get the di- disappointment out of the way. And then I'll talk about the thing that kind of keeps it afloat. Just when you hear that this movie is happening, you think, oh, there must be some crazy story behind the production of Citizen Kane and the writing, right? And there's really not. <laughs> like, there's not a lot here. I feel like I don't feel like Mank is ever that riveting of a character. And as such, Gary Oldman's performance is just kind of okay. I think Amanda Seyfried is good as sort of... uh, I I don't want to give away too much about her character because how it ties into Citizen Kane is interesting. But I just felt like the story and the script were fairly dull. I never really knew what I was supposed to be feeling. Was I supposed to pity Mank at some points as he's trying to kind of get his act together and write this script, but he's also not really getting credit for it. And he's got people coming at him from all sides, like, don't write this, studios, all, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of pressure on him. And I don't know, I just never really, like got a consistent emotion from this movie. I never really attached myself to Mank. It's probably the biggest problem. He's not that fun of a character or a character that I really invested in. I think a point of this movie is like kind of commentary on Hollywood and, and there's a lot of social issues thrown in there, but I never I never really felt like they developed them fully. And a lot of them are just kind of dumped out in this one drunk rant scene towards the end of this movie. For a movie by David Fincher, it's just not memorable at all. I can remember about two scenes from Mank and I only saw it like, two months ago it's just there's it's there's not much there that's what i'm the the problem there is just there's not a lot of substance to the mank story i just don't know if he was deserving of this story even though it's like slightly interesting that he wrote citizen kane and then didn't get a ton of credit for it right the thing that buoys it above bill and ted and borat is just it's david fincher it goes down smooth like it looks good it's technically executed very well. And I think on a technical level, it's definitely better, like objectively better than some of the things I'm going to talk about soon, particularly one thing in the seven range, which I'll get to. But I don't know, that technical prowess can only take Mank so far, whereas whereas it really is just like an, another great aspect of another David Fincher movie, right? Like the technical part of 
Zodiac is great, but also there's a great story with great characters, right? Like, so Mank, I, I don't know. This, some people will love Mank. Some people are going to think Mank is a masterpiece. I just couldn't connect with it on any level. Um, but I do think if you just want, like, good sound filmmaking, David Fincher doesn't disappoint. Mank. Let's not harp on this one too much longer. Next up, coming in at number 15, is one you may or may not have heard of. I think this came out last summer. That is Blow the Man Down, directed by Danielle Crudy and Bridget Savage Cole. Savage? I don't... Is that a real name? Savage? Is that like a middle name? Is it... That's kind of awesome. Alright, so this movie was kind of billed as like the New England Fargo. And that's kind of like all I'll say about the plot. is It's New England town, fishing town, and small town crime. So where does this movie succeed? Atmosphere and score. This is a 6 out of 10. I keep forgetting to mention that. The atmosphere of this movie of the small fishing town is great. The way this movie looks, the kind of colors, there's all these great blues and teals in this movie. You know, just the locations and the costume. I don't know. You get that New England vibe that I love. The score is unbelievable. I I love the score. It adds a lot of atmosphere, and it's just a really cool melody throughout a lot of this movie. There's also these great, like, uh, sea shanty type scenes, like one that opens the movie. The first three minutes of this movie are just this kind of... This guy just, you know, belting out this sea shanty that's titled Blow the Man Down, and I loved that. I was so in at, at the first three minutes. I loved it. Come all you young fellows that follow the sea To me way, hey, blow the man down Put a vent on your ears and listen to me Give me some time to blow the man down On a New England isle in a good seaport town To me way, blow the man down The fishing pays nicely if you don't drown Give me some time to blow the man down Margot Martindale gives a great performance. Quick shout out before I move into like the negatives of this movie. I, she is unbelievably good in this movie. She plays sort of like an antagonist type character. I don't want to say too much there either, but like her presence dominates this movie in every scene she's in. Uh, where this movie kind of lacks for me is for a movie that's kind of like, oh, that's supposed to be the Fargo, like the new Fargo. That's what I kept reading before I saw this movie. It has the small town crime vibe and it has some of the intrigue and it has kind of the like weaving cast of characters, characters coming in and out. Um, but it doesn't really unravel in a very interesting way. Like I think there's a good setup, but then it just kind of like fizzles out from there. I don't think there's a lot of great, uh, twists and turns or even just plot points in general in the script after the opening act. I think it just kind of like meanders its way through the rest. I, I found the back half of this movie to be a lot less enjoyable than the front half. I won't spoil anything again, but I just I didn't find this to like quite unravel in as fun of a way as like Fargo did, where where characters are losing control and the consequences are piling up. I never really felt like there was a lot of stakes through the back half of this movie, even though the first half told me there definitely should be. Um, but Blow the Man Down is a cool atmospheric movie. Uh, if you just like the New England vibe, then you're going to love this movie because you're just in this small town with a, a great score and a great look to the movie and I did appreciate that aspect of it a lot. Story-wise, I don't feel like there's a ton here, even though there could have been. I would have felt that way after the first half hour, which is kind of disappointing in some ways. But there's a lot of great performances in this ensemble. That's what you're also going to get from this movie. Also, for the kind of new Fargo, not a lot of comedy in this movie. There's a couple, like, uh, you know, little little laughs I had here and there. But I don't know. I just felt like this turned into a very standard movie by the end, which is very unfortunate because it starts off so strong. 
blow the man down, the last six on this list. Let's move into the sevens. And here is the most fan service pick for me. Uh, like fan service as in something that is just near and dear to my heart. And I know for a fact is not near and dear to most, to most people listening to this, uh, to their hearts. This movie should just completely invalidate this list, putting it here above Mank, right? Like you'll hear it in a second. You'll be like, okay. So I'll breeze through this one, but it's Phineas and Ferb, Candace against the universe. Now I stand by the fact that Phineas and Ferb, like Hoodwinked and like a couple other like children's animated properties, hold up and are and like have something for everybody on a level more so than just like saying that like oh parents will enjoy the story and stuff. Like no, there's some really witty humor in Phineas and Ferb and Hoodwinked and, and some of these other uh, properties. But this is just near and dear to my heart because because I watched Phineas and Ferb all the time when I was a kid. That was my show. I loved it. That was in the pantheon of cartoons I enjoyed. And I just think like, again, the humor of Phineas and Ferb holds up, like no matter how old you are. This movie fits right in with the show. So if you have any attachment to the show, there's no dip in quality here. There's a great meta joke involving the animators. That is just a really funny sequence for anything. Um, but it's great here in Phineas and Ferb. Again, I can't really put this here in good faith with like the greatest amount of objectivity. Um, but I'm just such a fan of the show that to see this movie, which had no drop in quality, it was just the Phineas and Ferb I know and love. Like I had to put it higher than a six. I, it was a seven. I, I really enjoyed this movie. Seven is becoming kind of the solid tier. My ratings are shifting downwards a little bit um, because the things at the top were getting a little too front loaded for my personal taste of ratings distribution. Um, but Phineas and Ferb, Candace versus the Universe. Again, I'm not going to recommend this to really anybody listening unless you like the show. Let's move on. That was number 14, I failed to mention, I think. Number 13, indie movie got a little bit of play because it came out last July or June-ish. Nothing was coming out at that point. This is the debut feature from Andrew Patterson, and it is called The Vast of Night. And it is a very Twilight zone tale about a small town, I think in Texas, and uh, some strange noises they start hearing over the radio, these strange frequencies, and a, str- a switchboard operator is also picking up these odd noises. And there's just so much intrigue to this movie about what this could be in this atmosphere building of this small town at night uh, where odd things are beginning to occur. The way this movie is filmed is unbelievably impressive for a, you know, a presumably kind of mediocre budget and a first-time feature film director. There's some great long takes where they're not only great long takes and that they're just interesting, but you're going to be asking, like, how did they do that? How did they get the camera to follow that path? It makes no sense. Like, I can't think of how they would do a couple of the shots in this movie. If you're a Twilight Zone fan, you're going to really like this movie. There's a lot of, like, great storytelling, like little scenes where, okay, now somebody's going to tell you this long story about they've heard this sound before, and it's just going to be you watching these two talk like somebody over the phone and you're just sitting there no cuts six minute sequence of somebody telling a story and you'll be in you'll be invested it's like it's like sitting around a campfire and listening to like ghost stories that's what this movie felt like to me this cozy little atmosphere of this small town where you're hearing these stories of great mystery and like you know what could be going on and trying to piece it all together the vast of night is a very impressive movie and i really enjoyed it strong recommend to anybody who's a big like twilight zone uh, kind of fan. It's not necessarily like the twists and turns of a Twilight Zone movie, but it's just kind of that sci-fi type intrigue that you'll love about The Vast of Night. All right, number 12, The Climb. Another movie that I there's no chance I would have seen this if 2020 had been a normal year for movies. The Climb is a movie from Michael Angelo Covino, who stars in the movie. 
Michelangelo Covino plays Mike and Kyle Marvin plays Kyle. Uh, and this is sort of the depiction of a friendship, not their real life friendship, but uh, these two made this movie in such a unique way. I and mean, it's hard to describe this movie in a lot of ways. Uh, this is another 7 out of 10 because I'll get to an issue I had with it. But this is like a really unique thing. It's really hard for me to talk about this one. Um, the structure of this movie, there's like nine chapters, basically. And each chapter is like a 10-minute long take, like a, a one-shot, one-take wonder. And it's like on a technical level, that's already really impressive for... I think these guys are also in like, you know, they've only made one or two uh, films before this. If you're familiar at all with Thunder Road uh, from Jim Cummings and kind of the strange tone that strikes, this strikes basically the exact same tone of kind of this like quirky, awkward lead character, but there's some heart to it, but also just some great comedy. Um, I found myself laughing out loud at this movie several times. At the center of it all is this friendship that's very different than what you might expect it to be. And that's where this movie loses me a little bit. I'm not really sure what this movie is trying to say with the friendship. And, 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 uh, you'll understand that when you see it. But there's like some very strange points to this friendship that, uh, I don't fully get. I think I'm missing something or maybe missing what they were trying to say. That's where it lost me a little bit with some of the thematic elements of this movie. But on a technical level, like just 10, uh, you know, basically vignettes that are one take. That is awesome. I love that. It may sound gimmicky, but it works so well. But yeah, this movie is basically just the story of a friendship. Uh, and I, you can't say much more to it than that. There's not a lot of plot to it, you know, beyond that either. But it's just a very unique take on, on two lifelong friends. That wasn't at all what I expected it to be. And, uh, I definitely enjoyed watching this one. If the, if the sort of 10 chapter gimmick interests you, definitely check it out. If you like Thunder Road, you're going to like this movie almost guaranteed. It's kind of Thunder Road light. Not much more to say about the climb, but it's, it's definitely an interesting one. It's not really like anything else on this list. Uh, and it's kind of hard to pin down why. I don't know. It's just like, it's a very strange tone. It strikes with very, uh, I don't know, like just kind of different characters in it. It's, it's again, it's one that's tough to put into words, but I think is an enjoyable watch. I enjoyed the climb. All right, number 11, a movie that came out before the world went to chaos, Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman. A seven for me again, but I really enjoyed The Gentleman. I've only seen two Guy Ritchie movies, this and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. I think I enjoyed this more than Lockstock. I really liked this one, uh, and I had heard kind of mixed reviews before I saw this one. I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to like this one, but I did. Without having seen a lot of Guy Ritchie, it seems like kind of vintage Guy Ritchie, like getting back to his roots of Lockstock and Snatch. The script is smart, as always. Like, that's what the Lockstock was like, and that's what this is like. Like, there's so many setups and payoffs that you don't even realize are setups and payoffs. A lot of great twists and turns that are really difficult to see coming. There's kind of a strange, like, framing device to this movie, and what I mean by that is, like, we've got a conversation happening now, then we got some flashbacks, but then some stuff happening simultaneously, and there's a lot of bouncing around on the timeline, and then even sometimes you're seeing stuff that, like, didn't happen, and then you see what did happen directly after, and I don't know, it, like, it really bounces around in terms of the time and space, which is very interesting. You've got a great, great cast in this movie. Hugh Grant is fantastically funny uh, and super charismatic. Uh, Charlie Hunnam, I don't think I've really seen any other Charlie Hunnam movies. He's great in this. I always love Matthew McConaughey. He's solid. I did not really like Jeremy Strong's performance. He's doing this very strange uh, sort of voice and stuff. Like, I kind of get what he's going for, and it, but it, to me, like, he just didn't have the 
ability to deliver it very well. I don't know. It just felt a little off to me. Colin Farrell's in this, and I Colin Farrell's another guy that I love everything he's in. This movie looks really cool, like just some of the stylistic choices. Um, the costuming is really awesome. Like I love the costuming of Colin Farrell and his sort of like gang of uh, of guys he works with. And again, it's just so tough to predict where the script is going to go next. Guy Ritchie is great at like weaving around these crazy story points and then like bringing them all home by the end. And I think this one, this movie does it in a really clean and efficient way uh, and in a bit more like engaging and fun way than Lockstock for whatever reason. I don't know. I think I had a better time watching this than Lockstock. If you're a Lockstock fan, I mean, you've probably seen this by now if you're a Guy Ritchie fan. The humor in this is not going to be for everybody. It's tough to predict where you're going to land on this movie. But like, yeah, if Guy Ritchie intrigues you at all, this is a movie to check out, of course. Good one. Good movie. The Gentleman. All right, we are in the top 10, and that means it's time to talk about Tenet. Tenet, which of course was mentioned as one of Corey's favorite uh, movies from 2020. Tenet is still a 7 out of 10 for me because this is the first Christopher Nolan movie where the kind of lack of like great characters and story and heart beneath the spectacle that like it finally hit me. I was like, you know, there's not really much here beneath the like surface spectacle. Spectacle is a word I'm going to use a lot for Tenet because Tenet does deliver on the spectacle, but I'll come back to that. I don't know. It's just the characters are kind of bland, especially Kenneth Branagh plays a very, very cartoonish villain. I feel like I could have written his character if you had said, like, uh, I want, like, kind of a Russian mob boss. And if you had told me that, like, eight years ago, this is probably what I would have come up with is exactly what Kenneth Branagh is in this movie. I mean, just like all the tropes are kind of there with his character. The goals and stakes of this movie are also a little bit tropey. Like, the stakes is just like, I, I, I won't give away the stakes and stuff, but it's a little bit like, all right, could we think of something a little bit more complex than that? I think the dialogue in this movie is not great. Um, unless I'm missing some sort of deeper satire from Nolan here, there is some lines that made me shake my head and like put my head in my hands. Like, how did that make it into the final cut? It makes no sense to me. Uh, you've probably seen the memes by now of, the protagonist and lines involving the protagonist. And I would just like, every time that word was uttered, I would just crack up laughing because it, it just doesn't fit at all. I don't know what he was going for by putting that in there and putting it in there as frequently as he does. My part. I'm the protagonist of this operation. But listen, you come to Christopher Nolan for the spectacle. While Inception is like the best blend of like some story and heart and character with the amazing effects and, and like, uh, you know, complex story device. This one is an amazing story device. I don't love the story beneath it, but look, you're coming for the story device, aren't you? With a Nolan movie? I mean, come on. Like, that's what you want. And this movie definitely hits that. The reverse stuff is is so fun to watch. The action set pieces are really cool. I don't think this movie is as insanely difficult to follow as I thought it might be. There's certainly some sequences I was lost on and had to really reflect on afterwards. But don't let that intimidate you if you've heard that this movie is going to make no sense whatsoever. But yeah, I, I think, again, you, you come to Christopher Nolan with expectations of just blow me away with the effects and what you guys were able to accomplish practically as well. That's always impressive. And just kind of the, the concept, like, what what is the new Nolan time-space bending idea here? Like, that's, that's what you're excited to see, right? And Tenet uh, fills into those shoes very nicely. Tenet! Number 10 on my list. Made the top 10. I still like Tenet. I liked it a lot. But it's still a 7. The, the, the story drags it off of that 8 uh, really good tier. 
by just a hair. And by just a hair, I mean we're about to move into the eights with my number nine, which is uh, the first foreign film on this list. And that is Another Round, directed by Thomas Vinterberg and starring Mads Mikkelsen, who I've heard the D is silent, I've heard the S is silent, so is it Mad, is it Maz? I have no idea. I'm going to say Mads. That's what everybody says. This movie is about four high school teachers who kind of launch an experiment based off what they've read from this uh, philosopher, like a uh, psychologist, that said, uh, basically, we're born in the hole in terms of BAC. And so we need like a constant plateau of intoxication throughout the day to function on our ideal level. And so these guys start drinking throughout the day and try and like nail the exact BAC and see how it changes their lives. And I don't even, I don't even have much to say about this movie except that it's so skillfully made. It's beautifully shot. I think there's a really cool kind of uh, warm tone color grading to this movie. I, I appreciated that a lot. You've got great performances. Mads Mikkelsen stands out, as does Thomas Bo Larsen, uh, who I wasn't familiar with. I mentioned this is foreign. It's like Danish and Swedish. I didn't exactly nail that down. I don't know why I've kind of just blanked on mentioning that at the start. But again, this movie is just like so well-crafted. There's individual stakes for this group of four that are really well-established. They're different among the group of four. They're all equally engaging. And it's just competently made. I mean, like it goes down smooth. I, I really liked Another Round. It ends on a bit of a strange note that I didn't love. As some people, it's their favorite ending of the year. I, w I wasn't really sure what to make of it. I think it might just be that this movie is very European, and that's what they're going for with the ending. I don't love the pop song choices at the beginning and end of this movie either. That was like one other little nitpick. But look, there, you just can't really go wrong with this movie. Like, this is just one I recommend if you just want a solid, interesting film. Good characters, well-made, well-acted, interesting story. Another round. I mean, it's just... It's just sound all around. Moving up to number eight, a movie that straddled the line between the world being normal and moving to all streaming releases, and that is Pixar's Onward. Um, this would be any other animated studio's best movie, but because it's Pixar, it's kind of like Lost in the Shuffle. It's just like, it's solid, but there's so many great Pixar movies that I feel like this one didn't get a lot of hype. Um, but I think Onward is really good. It's really clever with how it kind of incorporates the fantasy genre into its world building. Pixar is always fantastic at that, like picking every little detail of the world and like, you know, taking something from the genre they're working with and, and building it into that, you know? They're just always wonderful at that. And this movie is a great example of that. Like, you know, like what jobs these fantasy characters have, where they live, you know, um, you know, what devices they use and, and stuff like that. I don't know, it's hard to explain, but like if you're a fantasy fan, you're gonna love all the nods to fantasy lore and culture that are in this movie. Also, like Pixar usually does, this movie sticks the landing, an emotional and fulfilling ending as always with a Pixar movie. The voice performances from Tom Holland and Chris Pratt as your lead brother duo are fantastic. I didn't even mention what this movie's about, by the way. I mean, I kind of assume this one's pretty common knowledge, but it's just a fantasy quest movie with two brothers that are trying to kind of restore their dad. They're trying to bring their dad back for a day using a fantasy spell. And that goes awry at the beginning and they're trying to fix it. It's so funny what they do with the dad in trying to bring him back and what happens to him for the rest of the movie. I, I love that idea. It's kind of simple, but it just works so well. And I just love a good quest, like journey movie, especially in a fantasy atmosphere. And this is Pixar's version of that with the Pixar heart and the Pixar comedy and the Pixar cleverness. And it just works all around. I mean, it's another 8 out of 10, just solid, no real complaints. Onward. Good stuff. All right. Coming in at number seven, and at this point, I feel like I can basically recommend everything from here on out to basically anyone. 
Coming in at number seven is Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal is basically a flawless character study. That about sums it up. I don't even need to say much more than that, I feel like. I mean, it's a movie about this drummer named Ruben, played by Riz Ahmed, and he starts losing his hearing. He's a heavy metal drummer, and he starts losing his hearing. And that's your premise. And you see where he goes with that and the ways he tries to cope with that, ways he tries to fight it, ways he tries to accept it. And yeah, I basically have no issues with this movie whatsoever. Uh, it's directed by Darius Martyr, who I think this is his second um, directorial film. Uh, he directed a documentary before this, but he was also involved in writing The Place Beyond the Pines. Um, I kind of got that vibe a little bit. I don't know, something about the look of this movie and, and the tone uh, was reminiscent of it. I could feel that those roots. Um, a couple things I want to say about this movie, um, because I don't have any issues, but I, I like there's not anything I like really want to um, talk about too much of this movie. It's just like a very heavy experience. Uh, like I wouldn't go in expecting a lot of levity in this movie, but it is going to leave an impact on you in some way. I think it's it it really is impactful in terms of like acceptance um, of loss, you know, like what loss means, how we deal with loss. In this case, in a way that doesn't get a lot of play in movies a lot of times is going deaf. And there's this great kind of community and unity to that experience that Ruben experiences in this movie um, with some of the people he visits and where a large portion of this movie takes place, which I'll just, you know, say there's no reason to really talk about it uh, if you haven't seen it. I don't know. There's just this like, I felt like you could really understand the experience by watching this movie. You can never truly understand these things, but I feel like movies are a good gateway, are a good doorway to sometimes doing that with, with things that you might not be used to uh, encountering in your everyday life. If there's one recommendation I can make, it's watch this movie with headphones. They do some really cool things with the sound design, and I have to think it would be lost if you just had it playing from a speaker or from your TV. Um, I, I think headphones is a really cool way to immerse yourself in this movie. There's some really impactful moments that I think the headphones amplified that even more. But yeah, I have no issues with Sound of Metal. I mean, it's just so well done all around. It'll definitely uh, stay with you, and Riz Ahmed deserves all the hype he's getting. He's great in this movie. I knew him from his bumbling role as Rick in Nightcrawler, where Jake Gyllenhaal really runs that movie. Here he proves he can hold his own as a serious actor. Uh, he is fantastic in this movie. shows a lot of nuance. And uh, he deserves all the awards hype he's getting, for sure. Okay, on to number six. And this is a movie, possibly more so than any other movie on this list, that I cannot talk about much at all because the story is so bonkers that I just don't want to give away any of it. And that is a movie called Bacurau, a Brazilian movie called Bacurau, directed by some names that I will definitely butcher, but I mean, you just look on IMDb or, or Letterboxd or whatever your platform of choosing is. Uh, this is about a small town in Brazil. It's kind of a rural town. There's this great community in this rural town. Um, and, uh, I, I really, I can't even say anything more than that. If you read the letterbox or IMDb description, I'll give you like one intriguing detail. I don't even think that one's like the most honest of what you're going to get in this movie. There's just no way I can prepare you for the things that are in this movie without giving it all away. It's just, it takes so many turns that I was like, there was no way I was ever going to expect. This movie really reminded me of Parasite for a couple of reasons. First, the twists and turns that like, you just can't even remotely give away because they're just so strange and different. And also there's a lot of shared themes, sort of the uh, sort of the class idea, sort of the, the haves and the have-nots idea. Um, that's a great way of phrasing it that I heard before. This movie basically changes genres every 20 minutes, and it nails 
all of them, action, horror, comedy, everything. I mean, it's so impressive I, like how this movie comes together. There's no way it should work if you laid out all the details on like a spreadsheet. There's no way it should work, and it works wonderfully. There's aspects of a Western in here. There's some Tarantino-esque violence in here. There's, I mean, there's just really a bit of everything in this movie. And again, I just don't want to even say much about it because I don't want to even remotely ruin this for anybody considering watching it. I don't want to oversell it either of like, oh, this thing is going to blow you away. It's just I went into this movie knowing pretty much nothing. I just heard like, oh, this is pretty good. And I was trying to beef up my 2020 list of movies. And I was like, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be at all. Baccarat. What what a crazy movie. And uh, definitely deserving of the spot high on this list in the uh, sixth position here. All right. Number five is the feel-good comedy of 2020 that really perfectly captured what the feeling of quarantine was like and that is palm springs directed by max barbacow it's gonna be a beautiful wedding it's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about that i might have heard about yeah no i'm gonna get out of this suit yourself see you tomorrow it's gonna be a beautiful wedding we're still in eight territory but i loved palm springs first of all i just always love andy samberg Pretty much everything he's done, I've enjoyed, um, especially like his uh, sort of parody movies, things like Seven Days in Hell. I love some of the comedy he brings into those. And here he's just his usual charismatic self. He's also with uh, Kristen Milioti. I don't even know how to say this. I've heard Christina Milioti, Christina Milioti, Christina Milioti. I don't know. <laughs> I'm saying like every iteration of this. J.K. Simmons is in this movie as a, a really interesting part. All I'll say, you get this from the trailer, you get this from the plot synopsis. It's a unique spin on Groundhog Day, and it's in like this Palm Springs resort. That's all I really want to say. It's very unpredictable. It sounds like, okay, it's just Groundhog Day all over again. No, there's some definitely different details in here that I really enjoyed. Just kind of a unique twist on what you know. I love the setting and the vibe of this movie, just being in Palm Springs. These guys... Uh, you know, chilling and, and, and stuck in a time loop in this, in this location. Again, it's Groundhog Day. I'm not spoiling anything. You know, it's a time loop from the first scene, but the comedy is just fantastic. It's laugh out loud funny at times. It's also heartwarming at other times. Um, there's like a sort of rom-com element beneath this whole movie. It's a perfect quarantine movie. There's a lot of interesting messages to this movie as well, which you wouldn't expect in an Andy Samberg, you know, comedy romp about, you know, just acceptance, but also like what it means to change. And how we deal with the concept of change and how we sometimes fight it. And this movie just has so many setups and payoffs as any good Groundhog Day-esque movie should. Um, that's what you can definitely expect in this movie. It delivers there. Palm Springs is just like a, a feel-good, fun movie. It is absolutely hilarious at times. Um, and I definitely feel good about recommending this one to anybody. It's just a great comedy movie. Palm Springs, number five. Top five. All right. We're moving to number four. We're really getting up there now. And uh, here at number four is the last eight before we transition into nines. This movie, uh, so I mentioned Thunder Road earlier, directed by Jim Cummings. Not everybody has heard of Thunder Road or Jim Cummings, but Jim Cummings is dynamite. He directed and starred Thunder Road, but this movie that came out last year is a little movie called The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which he again directed and starred in The Wolf of Snow Hollow. I love this movie. I love it so much. I don't really know how to like talk about or sell this movie if you're not already familiar with Jim Cummings because he's just so different from everything else that's out there right now. He's only made two movies and they're both just so good. Thunder Road is ridiculously good. Wolf of Snow Hollow is also incredible. 
This movie is just this tight, cozy narrative in this like snowy town that blends horror, comedy, and mystery into just this really unique little thing. And I don't even know. It's just great. It's so fun. It is just a unrelentingly fun movie. If, if you're not familiar with Jim Cummings, I would best describe him as kind of this... The characters he plays are these sort of awkward, lovable characters with tendencies to like kind of fly off sometimes and, and get into some really crazed fits. Jim Cummings' delivery of dialogue is just always amazing. Something about it. I mean, he's just, he can just deliver lines in such a fun way. As sort of a, a synopsis of this movie, it's kind of in the title... Um, Jim Cummings is a police officer, there's a murder, and people are starting to speculate there might be a wolf terrorizing this town, and he doesn't believe it. It's just some dude killing people, right? I mean, it's not a, a werewolf, and we gotta kind of decipher that and see where it goes. And again, there's just horror elements. If you're a fan of slashers, it's got that, but also it's got like the classic monster kind of vibe. It's got these great montages that are just filled to the brim with funny dialogue and funny moments delivered by Jim Cummings, but also the rest of the cast is great in this movie. There's some really impressive costume and makeup work at times, and there's a ton of character threads thrown into this 90-minute movie, and they all feel impactful even in such a short runtime, and that's hard to pull off. Like, there's a lot of different character threads that you're considering and bouncing between, but I care about all of them. I think each of them resolve themselves in interesting ways. Some are more satisfying than others, and I think that's a great balance to have. Like it's it's kind of cool to have some pay off the way you think they might they might, and others not so much. The Wolf of Snow Hollow is just such a fun little like mystery horror movie. I don't really know who to recommend this one to either. I think everybody should give Jim Cummings a shot though, because he's just different than what you're seeing right now. I don't know something about his vibe is different. He's just he's great putting together these stories and writing them. He is great at directing them competently. And as the star, I mean, he just brings a ton of energy to this movie. Shut down the mountain. Get these cars out of here. Call your people. We need this parking lot. John. It's another young woman. John, they're saying there's a big bear, big jaw. No, it's a man. When do I get to be right about something? The canine's lower mandible. That's what they're get saying. Get him on the phone. I'm not listening to I got to him that. on the phone. I'm telling you what they're saying. Hey, you can't park that here. You can't park that here. We need you 500 feet away at least. It's a crime scene. Just park up Elm Street. I got Monica Bravo out here. Who's call the news? John. John. Oh. None of you talk to me at once, okay? Yes, sorry, Brittany. I'm going to be there January 28th. Do not call me again, okay? Do not call me. I am at work. Who's the victim? Is she local? Looks like it. We gotta get a van to pull her out of here. All right, hey, do we have anybody of our guys in a van? Jim, we're gonna need fingerprints. Your top is gone. Her, her, her what? Her, her head. Her, her head is gone. Got it. John. John. Yeah. I can't hear you. You gotta They're speak up. They're saying it's a wolf. Jim Cummings is the man right now, and I will see pretty much anything he does from here on out. Uh, he's got another one in the works right now called The Beta Test, and I'm excited to see that whenever it comes out. Jim Cummings, you're the best, and The Wolf of Snow Hollow takes the number four spot on this 2020 ranked list, which means it's time for the top three. My top three favorite movies of 2020. We're entering nine territory. Now, this next one, uh, this I have so much to say about this next one, and it's really, I don't even know like where to start, really. It's, it's a very different movie as well. <laughs> um, Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell, and starring Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Allison Brie, 
and a bunch of others. I saw the trailer for this movie about a year ago, you know, like uh, sometime in February, January, because uh, it was slated for like probably like a March, April release before everything went to chaos. And it just didn't look like a movie for me. Uh, the aesthetic, it's kind of this candy pop aesthetic. I, it didn't, didn't look like it was for me. Um, it seemed like a movie that might kind of clobber me over the head with its themes. It didn't seem very subtle. I knew what it was going for immediately. I thought, you watch the trailer to this movie. I'm just, this is how I'm going to sell the movie to you because this is how it was sold to most people. Rape revenge thriller. That's it. That's what you know. Candy pop aesthetic rape revenge thriller. And I, I, I won't say much more. Now you know it, there's going to be some more, uh, complexity to that. There is. And that's what makes this movie great. You get a little bit of every genre, kind of like Baccarat, not to the extent of Baccarat, but, um, definitely blends a lot more elements than I thought it might. It, this movie just didn't go according to my expectations at all, and I really loved that about it. The story kept me on my toes so much. There's so many twists and turns that I did not see coming that are uh, unbelievably well thought out. Some of some people have complained about a couple of them because some of them are very bold, some of the turns this movie takes. They all worked for me, all of them. I want to talk about some more elements before I kind of like give a broader thought on the movie, but um, the soundtrack is like the only only complaint I have with the movie. Sometimes the soundtrack is a mixed bag. Sometimes it really works. Like uh, there's an orchestral version of Toxic by Britney Spears. That worked for me so well. Um, but there's some other song choices that are a little bit strange. I don't love. Um, Carrie Mulligan. This is a career highlight. I haven't seen a ton of Carrie Mulligan movies, but she is incredibly good in this movie. I found myself very attached to her character very quickly. And I think she brings a lot of that energy. Bo Burnham is in this movie with a ton of charisma. He's a lot of fun in this movie. Um, but I, yeah, so my broad thought here is just that this movie is not for everybody. But again, it's not a movie that is going to be as A to B as you think. There's a lot of uh, uniqueness to this script. There's a lot of complex morals. There's a lot of moral ambiguity. It's Again, it's also not as black and white as you might think. Um, again, I'm just going off what like people had to have thought from the trailers and what I certainly thought from the trailers. I just can't really like speak about this movie and do how much it impressed me justice without giving stuff away. I'm going to talk about this in a spoilerful section at the end of this episode after we've made it through the number one. But this is this is a movie that's not going to be for everybody. For me, it really, really worked, and I loved it, and I loved what it was trying to say, and some people do not. And uh, I don't know. I just feel like I can't say much more than that without giving away things. And I uh, really enjoyed Promising Young Woman, and it has stayed with me. Since I saw it, I had to pay the 20 bucks for it. It's one of those movies you got to basically pay, you know, more than movie theater ticket price right now. I thought it was worth every penny. It's a divisive movie. I understand that. So I can't necessarily recommend it to everybody, even though around Sound of Metal, I said from here on out, I recommend everything. Um, but this is one that I feel like you have to give a shot and decide if you like it or not. I didn't think I was going to see it. And I, I just can't imagine a world where I wouldn't have seen this movie. I really enjoyed it. Like, I, you know, I would have missed out. So uh, there's a silver lining there in terms of the movie world, I guess. <laughs> Promising Young Woman, number three. Love that movie. Okay, number two. You know, earlier I said I'm not going to put Hamilton on this list because I don't think it really fits. I like to do feature films. But this is the first time I'm going to put something 
a little bit different. I usually don't include documentaries on these ranked lists. I don't see a lot of documentaries in general, but this is the first time I really feel compelled to because I watched a little documentary called Dick Johnson is Dead, and it is probably the most impactful documentary I've ever seen, period. Dick Johnson is Dead is a very unique spin on the genre of a documentary itself. I don't really know if you would call it a genre, but it's not what you think of when you think documentary. There's some kind of fictional elements to this documentary. There's these kind of comedic fantasies. Um, what this documentary is about is about the director, uh, Kirsten Johnson, uh, or maybe Kirsten, uh, and her father, Dick Johnson. And uh, I'm just going to read the way that they phrase it on Letterboxd because uh, I, I think they kind of sum it up the best. With this inventive portrait, director Kirsten Johnson seeks a way to keep her 86-year-old father alive forever. Utilizing movie-making magic and her family's dark humor, she celebrates Dr. Dick Johnson's last years by staging fantasies of death and beyond. Together, dad and daughter confront the great inevitability awaiting us all. I mean, I read that. I was like, wow, I feel like I got to see this. This sounds very different. And it is. It's a, it's a daughter with her father, and they're kind of together through these fantasies and through tough conversations, um, acknowledging that Dick's getting up there in age and Dick's, uh, you know, health is, is hurting a little bit and, uh, and what might be to come. First of all, Dick Johnson is such a genuine guy that you just love to watch. And uh, you're going to love him throughout this thing if you watch this documentary. Like, he's just such a lovable guy. And uh, this movie is insanely heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time throughout its 90 minutes. Um, but I think you come out of it with a bigger heart for family and what you love and what you have. I certainly did. The room gets very dusty throughout this movie from start to finish. No breaks. It's heavy, but also very funny. Darkly funny at times. I don't want to say too much here either. I like kind of have this problem with the top half of this list is there's so many beautifully done but unpredictable aspects to the movies I'm talking about that I just have to like, if you're interested at all, take my recommendation, just have faith in it, go in blind, and I think you'll come out the other end with some sort of difference. You'll have laughed or you'll have, uh, you know, experienced something heavy. I feel that way from Sound of Metal on and I feel that way here with Dick Johnson is dead, possibly more so than any other movie on this list. I just want to give like two examples of stuff you're going to see in this documentary. And I think this this will get you the vibe of what this movie is. First off, on the comedic element. At one point, Dick and Kirsten recruit a stuntman. And they're basically like, all right, so we want you to pretend as if you're Dick Johnson and die. And like you're going to get hit in the head by like somebody dropping an appliance off the roof. And you watch them like filming this and Dick watching and Dick's just making little you know, quips and stuff. And it's just such like a weirdly meta moment of like an actor, a stuntman playing the guy, Dick Johnson, who is watching the actor playing him die. I don't even know. It's hard, it's hard to explain, but it's just such a strange moment. It's funny, but also like, uh, you know, heavy at the same time. And then, you know, there's just a lot of really tough conversations and raw conversations in this movie. There's a moment pretty early on, uh, where Dick is driving, they get home. And uh, Kirsten says, Dick, we're going to have to get rid of your car. And and just the way Dick reacts and the way they walk through the rest of that conversation has just stuck with me ever since. And uh, I don't know, something about it. It's just such a real and vulnerable documentary. I feel like it takes a lot of confidence to make a documentary like this. 
uh, to even approach your dad and say, hey, I want to make a documentary like this. It's not as heavy and tragic as I feel like I might be selling it as. There's a lot of great moments of comedy and levity in this thing. Um, but this this documentary is just a different animal. It's hard to explain it. I absolutely love it. I don't want to oversell it, but this one just really left a mark on me. And I love Dick Johnson is Dead for that. And I won't say much more than that. Dick Johnson is Dead, number two for 2020. Number one. I feel like you might be able to guess what this is by now because like knowing me and the movies I watch, I feel like you have to be like, okay, that's going to be on the list somewhere and you haven't heard it yet. So let's just get to it. Number one is Soul. Soul. Oh, I love Soul. And here's what I got to say. Soul. So my Pixar top five, I thought was pretty ironclad. Like I thought, okay, nothing's going to really break into my top five Pixar movies. Like I just didn't see something in the near future topping up topping, uh, you know, Finding Nemo, topping Incredibles or Monsters, Inc. Those are some of the movies that are up there in my top five. Soul immediately leaped to number three, which, I, you know, maybe that setup made it sound like I was going to say number one. But that's tough to do for me because I love Pixar, and it's tough for Pixar to top some of those masterpieces like Finding Nemo. And I couldn't believe what I had watched after Soul ended, honestly. I was like, that was unbelievably good. Dick Johnson was a 9 out of 10. Soul is a 10 out of 10 for me. I loved Soul so much. This movie is uh, Pixar's most sweeping and grand piece and statement, I think. It's very ambitious, and they hit it on every level. This movie is directed by Pete Docter, who's basically made all of my favorite Pixar movies up. Monsters, Inc., Inside Out to a lesser degree, but still a great movie. And now Soul. This movie, you've, you might have figured it out from the trailers by now, but all I'm going to say is there's a jazz teacher named Joe. Uh, Joe gets a really big break in the world of jazz. And uh, I'm going to leave it there. I think you could probably figure out a little bit more from the trailers and what you know. A lot of people have already seen this, so I'm not going to like keep it very mysterious here. But Soul, I thought, was just flawless, basically. There's so much wonder and awe in Soul uh, that is accomplished through uh, an amazing art style that's unlike anything Pixar has done before that I absolutely loved. The score is just incredible. It's this blend of jazz as well as this sort of electronic... Uh, sort of vibe. I don't know how to describe it, but the, the composers, you've got Trent Reznor on sort of the electronic side, and you've got uh, John Batiste on the uh, on the sort of jazz side. I might be saying that wrong. And Soul is just, I mean, I, like, I'm just kind of struggling to find like direct things to point out. It's just such an experience watching Soul. This movie is a very positive movie uh, in a year where there wasn't a lot of positive notes for people. And I think Soul was such a great send-off at the end of 2020 of like a live every minute sort of vibe, right? And that's a message I've always tried to live by. And I think that's a message that should be universally held by people. And Soul is basically a love letter to that idea, a statement on that idea of appreciating what you have, appreciating what you have done with your life, what it means to feel fulfilled. There's really deep ideas in here. And Pixar is known for deep ideas, but they've never gone this deep. And for them to try and go for these types of messages and land it so well is uh, insanely impressive. I, I don't, I can't say much more about Soul. It's, it's like, it's one of those movies that just hit me in the core, and it's just tough to even say why. It's a beautiful movie. Um, I recommend it to everyone. This and Dick Johnson's Dead, you can kind of see the theme at the top of my list here about these kind of big pieces on life. And so that sounds a little serious and crazy, but th these movies just they they rock me to the core. They're so good. And I just kind of want to sum up Soul with like one moment in this movie, which is this very simple montage where Joe sits down at his piano and he just kind of starts to play and he starts thinking about his life 
And we get this very simple montage of moments from Joe's life, of moments from the movie so far, of moments of the world around Joe. And I, I was hit so hard by this montage that is delivered so simply and elegantly. I'll be honest, I cried during this part. I don't know why. It just like, there is such this sense of wonder and awe and beauty to that montage. that And, and the music there is unbelievably good. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I just, I love Soul. <laughs> and it's one of those movies that's going to always be with me as as one of my favorites. And uh, I may be really overhyping this and Dick Johnson is dead. Maybe neither of them will connect with you. But both really resonated with me on a lot of different levels. Um, I, if you're a Pixar fan, you had to have seen this by now. Don't go in expecting a laugh out loud riot if you're looking for a nice family movie. This is a, a big ambitious piece by Pixar that works on every level, I think. And again, I don't want to oversell these, but these movies are like just so personal to me now. Like I, I will forever cherish these two movies and the effect they had on me when I watched them. Um, and I strongly recommend both to everyone. Again, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to set you up and then have you be disappointed. And that tends to happen when, when you give a movie recommendation, you set the bar a little bit too high, but I love soul and it is my number one of 2020. 10 out of 10 soul. Thank you, Pete Doctor, who might be retiring after this one or moving on to a different position in Pixar. Dude had a flawless filmography, and Soul was the best note he could have ended on. Alrighty guys, 18 movies. We covered them all. I'm sure this podcast is going to be very long. I'll probably do some trimming. Uh, but uh, that was the movies of 2020 that I saw ranked. Again, turned out to be a great year. And I'm so glad that I looked at some stuff I probably normally wouldn't have looked at. Um, again, just a silver lining there in a year of, of negatives, I guess. Sound of Metal on, I think there's something for everybody in those movies even if it's just a movie to see where you stand on it, you know, like see what styles you like and what styles you don't like. Like Dick Johnson is dead. It's going to be an interesting experiment of like, do you like the tone this movie is going for? It's different. Same with Promising Young Woman. I, there's just a lot of fun to be had on this list. And I had a lot of fun talking about it. I think my excitement probably showed, sometimes showed a little bit too much. And I start leaving these sort of uh, objective points about a movie and start getting either very amped up or sentimental. I'm sure you got that vibe. But... Let's talk about some spoilers from these. But before I do that, thank you for listening if you're going to sign off at this point. I think the movies I'm going to spoil here, I'm going to go in order of, you know, like lowest ranking to highest ranking. I think I'm going to spoil Tenet, followed by Promising Young Woman, followed by Soul. I think that'll be it. I don't think I have much to say on the other ones besides that. So um, that'll be the order. Feel free to skip ahead or, or, you know, do whatever you need to to hear the ones you want to hear or hear... If you don't want to hear any of them, if you haven't seen them or, or you don't care to hear it, this has been episode 43 of Cine Study, uh, 2020 ranked. 
And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your submissions. If you if you wrote in on the on the movies you saw, I hope you guys watch some of this stuff from 2020. You know, I, I definitely think there's some great stuff out there. I'm sure you guys are watching good stuff that I didn't see, and maybe I'll get some recommendations there too. But I thank you for listening. I'm about to talk about spoilers, so if you're still listening, welcome to the spoilerful section. I don't really have much to say about Tenet. I just wanted to like kind of clarify some of my points. I think Kenneth Branagh is a goofy villain. I didn't like him at all. The stakes are literally just the world is going to end. Like seriously, could we get something a little bit more nuanced than that? I don't know. I, I needed a little bit more than that. Um, it's just it's just so broad. And I never really felt a tangible threat because what was it? if just Kenneth Branagh dies, then the world blows up or something. I don't know. It really at some point felt like a very standard other action movie, like just the tropes that this movie found itself in. It's saved by how much uh, work Christopher Nolan does in putting together set pieces and putting together, you know, the stuff behind the camera. But that's all I really wanted to say is kind of clarify uh, that's the stake stuff I was talking about. So let's talk about Promising Young Woman. Wow, is that final act unbelievable. It's so unexpected. Um, but let's, let's take it back a minute. When you get Bo Burnham's voice on the video that Alison Brie provides to Cassie, Carrie Mulligan's character, I should have seen that coming, and I just didn't, and my jaw dropped the first time. I was so, like, A, how did I not see that coming, but, like, B, this changes everything. Like, this whole movie's dynamic just changed. You got a lot of rom-com elements up until this. It felt like a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but rom-com type style they were going for. And and then it just it shifts gears so suddenly... Or at least you know it's going to. It's very tragic in the moment, but you're like, uh-oh, this movie's about to take a turn back into Cassie's darker ways. By the way, is Cassie killing people? I guess we're not really sure. It seems like she's just lecturing them sternly, right? I think some of the marks in her book mean she killed him. I feel like a pink mark in her book means she killed him. I don't know, just a theory that I want to flood out there. Next big thing. She goes to Al Monroe's bachelor party, and Al Monroe kills her. And that was another thing I was like, I could have, there's no way I could have seen that coming. I, like, I just didn't think it was going to take that bold of a turn of killing off this character that's supposed to be really sticking it to this culture of, of men. And I was like, I was just so blown away by the confidence to make a decision like that in your script. Uh, and, and you know, the heaviness and the darkness it's going to bring, like the, the just total tragic feeling it's going to impart onto your audience. And that's where a lot of people have a hold up with this movie. And it's kind of, blow me away. So many people went in expecting a rape revenge thriller, and this is what I was hoping to get at, um, but not too much in the spoiler-free section. And then when you get something that's a little bit more morally ambiguous, and something that um, doesn't actually have like a woman like uh, you know really exacting her revenge, I think people were disappointed by that. I think people felt let down by that. People were like, oh, you know, this was supposed to help victims of of suffering, and instead it, it probably made them feel worse. But I feel like people are missing the point. Maybe I'm alone. Maybe I'm going to sound completely off when I say this. But I feel like Emerald Fennell was trying to make a movie where she said, in the end, the woman gets screwed over. It's a very pessimistic note, but it's a it's the real note that she was trying to hit. That's the vibe I got. And it seems like people were missing that. They wanted a sort of satisfactory 
um, you know, justice delivered type movie. And when they didn't get that, felt very betrayed in a way. And I, I think the just the message of this movie is darker than that. Uh, I think it's it's realer than that. I think it's more nuanced than that throughout the movie. And I just ultimately feel like this is a movie that, yeah, if you go in with the wrong expectations, you're not going to have a good time. I went in with just like a general idea of the vibe and I loved it, partly because it was so different than what I was expecting and because of how like real and impactful the message it sends is. So yeah, I just think some people had the wrong idea of what this movie was going to give them or what the movie should have given them. I just think Emerald Fennell was trying to give a sort of theme of like, in the end, women can lay it all out there um, to like fight this and just still get screwed over to a degree. The movie was supposed to end with Cassie dying. The studio kind of insisted on some sort of closure with this sort of, uh, you know, tech stuff and, and getting Al Monroe arrested. I do think that is like a, a nice little note to end on. I think ending on the heavier note would have worked really well. By the way, Al Monroe's friend, Max Green something. Ah, I'm blanking on the name. I, I'm not going to look it up. He's He is amazing in the last scene he's so like you just want to punch him in the face but he's also very funny at the same time but i was just gonna say um and now i've kind of lost my train of thought for a second there just with that little aside but the closure you get at the end of this movie a the song choice for some reason is so perfect angel of the morning like something about it just hits hard at the end like i don't know i was just like so hyped at the end of this movie hyped not like happy hyped as in like wow that was awesome like and and the, for some reason the music just accompanied that <laughs> very well I think the scheduled texting is a little bit gimmicky, um, but uh, it worked. And uh, I just think, again, what a bold way to like take a turn at the end of your movie. And I think um, that was a great choice. I think some people who don't like that choice are maybe missing an element of it. I don't want to sound pretentious at all or like, like people, oh, they missed the point or, uh, or whatever. But I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, maybe I picked up a different message than everybody, but I thought it was supposed to be a very cynical turn at the end. I don't think the movie was ever supposed to be, you know, like woman enacts justice for the wrongs that her friend experienced. I think it was supposed to be a much darker tale. And you know how studios sell things. They got to they got to pick something and, and sell it to what they think people are going to watch. And if it's a candy colored rape revenge movie, oh, it will get people in the seats. Promising a Woman deserves all the awards hype it's getting. I hope it wins most, if not all of them. Great movie. And uh, that final act was just unbelievable. Okay, last thing to spoil is, uh, I think Soul is what I said, right? All I wanted to say is that montage, I just love the wonder and awe of, like, you know, just the memories Joe has. They're so simple and so beautiful. Um, the animation is wonderful there. The shots of just, like, New York zooming out to the world, to, you know, the universe. Something about it, it just hit. It resonated at the core. I, I loved it. Um, the end of this movie, same way. It's just, like, such a... Uh, it just fills you with so much like joy and uh, wonder by the end of this movie of like the things Joe's encountered, the art design of the great beyond and the path up to it is I love the way that looks. And that's another thing that just fills you with such awe, but also this kind of dread and just what a note, you know, I'm going to live every minute of it. It's just a, a wonderful message that I hope to live by. And I think soul delivered that perfectly at the end with that final note. All right, guys. 2020 ranked this one has been a doozy of an episode has been long but i had a ton of fun talking about it and i hope uh, you guys enjoyed hearing about it if you liked this episode be sure to subscribe be sure to hit five stars on apple podcasts facebook instagram at cinestudy podcast mainly instagram at cinestudy podcast that's what i mainly use gmail cinestudy podcast at gmail.com if you want to send me your recommendations from 2020 your lists feel free 
um, Letterbox at Film Dylan. I've got this list live on there now, and you will also be able to see other lists I've ranked before. Because uh, the way this works is I'm not going to add any movies to this list. It's locked now. Even if I see more 2020 movies, I won't add them to this list. But I may shift movies on this list around over time as my opinions change. Quick rankings update. I guess I, I maybe should have uh, included this somewhere else. Like Joker just recently slipped down a couple of spots in my 2019 rankings because I rewatched Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like, these are both definitely better than Joker. My opinion of Joker did not go down much, but I just really like those two movies and they... they boosted up a little bit more. So that may happen over time. So uh, definitely get on Letterbox at Film Dylan. I will follow you back, of course. Letterbox is a great place. Excited to do so. Um, that's about it, guys. 2020 ranked. Great year. Some great movies that will stick with me forever. And hopefully you guys uh, got to view some great stuff too, or maybe took one or two recommendations from me here, or heard something that piqued your interest. If not, oh well. I'm surprised you made it this far, <laughs> if not. But uh Thank you guys for listening. This has been episode 43 of Cinestudy, and I'll catch you next time.